Relief efforts continue in the southwest and central communities most impacted by Hurricane Ian. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. What support is actually needed versus what supporters assume people need after Category 4 Ian ravaged the west coast of Florida? A WLRN reporter on the ground there provides insight on how things are going. And what impact will Hurricane Ian have on voter turnout just weeks before a major midterm election? We explore what research says about voting habits after a destructive hurricane. Finally, the city of Miami terminated the contract for a beloved Little Havana Art House Cinema, and the community has a lot to say about this controversial decision. All of that today on a special fundraising edition on the South Florida Roundup, after the news. I'm Wilkin Brutus, and welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Search and rescue efforts are ongoing. Nearly a week after Hurricane Ian devastated communities in the southwestern coast and central part of the state. In Lee County alone, more than 55 deaths were linked to the Category 4 Ian, according to the latest figures from the county sheriff's office. The storm has affected everyone, from people living in mobile home communities to first responders working around the clock, handling emergencies while their own homes are damaged. What exactly do people need during major hurricane relief efforts? Call us 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining us to discuss recovery efforts in the southwestern part of the state is WLRN's reporter, Broward reporter, Gerard Albert III. Gerard, thanks for joining us. Of course, welcome. Thank you. Uh, You're on the ground right now in the southwestern part of Florida. What city and county are you in right now? So I'm in Lee County. Um, I am in uh, Estero, which is just north of Naples and just south of Fort Myers. Most of the time I've been reporting, though, I've been in Fort Myers, uh, Cape Coral, and then yesterday on Pine Island, which is a barrier island that saw a good bit of damage from the storm. Uh, Earlier, I said nearly a week. It's actually been more than a week uh, since Hurricane Ian struck the region. Now, Hurricane Ian brought deadly wind and storm surge to that specific area. How would you describe the scene there right now? And what's the atmosphere like? Uh, the atmosphere is is is, is definitely uh, rushed. I, I think everybody is is trying to get themselves together. Um, but it's it's also very communal. Um, everybody is helping each other out. Everybody is checking up on each other. Everyone that I've talked to has been extremely friendly, not just to me, but to their neighbors and their neighbors have in turn been friendly to them. Um, Most of the places that I've gone saw flooding from uh, rivers that lead out to the Gulf. Um, Most houses, you know, three to four feet of water, um, which is, if you think about it, almost an entire wall that they're going to have to Uh, take out of their home. The floors are flooded. Uh, Boats ended up in their yards. Trees were downed. And then on on Pine Island, which is the barrier island on the north end, um, it actually swept away a couple of houses and part of the bridge to get on the island. That was the one that just opened up yesterday. And, um, you know, things are just washed away. Roofs, boats are flipped over. There are parts of of electrical poles in the water sticking out. It's 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 pretty messy. Just as you describe, boats in the yard, folks' homes are flooded with, you know, 
water. Uh, there is a silver lining in regards to folks actually coming out and helping each other. Um, what have people you've spoken to said about their needs at this current moment? Uh, it differs uh, between regions. Some regions uh, have water again, uh, Pine Island yesterday just got water. Everyone here is still in a boil water notice. But, um, you know, some people got power a couple days after the storm. Some people never lost power. So uh, communities in places like Bonita Springs, um, you know, basic necessities are needed. Gas as always. But, but you know, some people are going to have to throw out all of their furniture. Um, you know, if you think that uh, water got into your house and, and all the, the furniture that soaked it up, that water was not clean water. And, and, and not only do you have to worry about mold, but also the the sewage mixing with the water. So people are going to need furniture. People are going to need to, uh, you know, have basic necessities first, obviously, but as, as the, as the recovery continues, they're going to need bigger things that furniture and, and, and probably new cars and drywall, things like that. Yeah. Basic necessities, but also big ticket items that they have to uh, consider as they move forward. Um, how can our listeners help right now? Are there any local organizations that they can reach out to? There are so many, um, it's way too many to list. I, I know that um, on air, we've been talking about the Florida Disaster Relief Fund. Um, you know, I spoke with uh, a firefighters union that takes donations and, and they come and help out local firefighters here and they come from across the state. Um, one of our reporters, Tim Paget, talked to a group from Immokalee, which is mostly migrant workers, um, and, and they didn't get too much damage. So they went out and helped other migrant workers who were in Naples, uh, and that was through a church and the, and a workers coalition out there. So there are so many resources um, for for people to go and, and and help out. And and I think on the ground too, you know, if if you if you have a boat and you have the desire to come out and and ferry resources to and from places, that's a that's a huge huge help. And, and Gerard, let's segue to firefighters. You've reported on how many firefighters in the region have seen damage to their own homes as a result of Ian. But for them, keeping the community safe tends to come first. How do firefighters handle that double-edged sword? I, I asked that to the Cape Coral chief. Cape Coral is a little uh, northwest of Fort Myers, and they saw a lot of flooding and, and, and downed power lines and things like that. And I asked the chief, you know, as you're sitting there, preparing for the storm to come in in the station with your firefighters how does it feel to be to know that your houses are probably getting you know flooded and destroyed and he told me they just compartmentalize you know they you know but they're human it's it, he told me it was sad it was depressing but they they have a job to do you know he that chief was able to come back and see his house for maybe 5 minutes almost 24 hours after the storm he saw all the damage and had to go had to go back to work Wow. Wow. Uh, Gerard Albert III is WLRN's Broward reporter, Broward County reporter. Thanks for joining us, Gerard. Really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you. Welcome. Still to come, new research provides insight on the impact Hurricane Ian may have on voter turnout just weeks before a major midterm election. I'm Wilkin Brutus, and welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. 
More than a week after Hurricane Ian destroyed homes and businesses in the southwest and central part of the state, communities and county officials await another logistical challenge, major midterm elections, which include a high-profile governor's race. Election officials have to worry about how to get displaced voters to precincts as officials continue to assess damage to buildings and even voting sites. New research may provide a window into voting habits after yet another major hurricane hit Florida. It is a special pledge edition of the Roundup. You can make your donation to continue support to continue supporting our program like this by calling 800-743-WLRN 800-743-9576. Joining us today to talk about how hurricanes impact voter turnout is Danny Rivero, co-host of the South Florida Roundup and reporter for WLRN. Danny, what's up? <laughs> Good to be here again. Great to see you. Uh, I live in Palm Beach County, and like many people in my county, I've already received my vote-by-mail ballot. Uh, Folks can decide on candidates, uh, make their decision on important amendments. Uh, This access to voting feels like a luxury uh, right now. The University of Chicago uh, recently published a paper with insight into how a destructive hurricane affects voter turnout just weeks before a major midterm election. What's the major finding from this particular research? Right. So this paper, and I talked to one of the co-authors recently about it because it just came out. Um, It looked at the impact that Hurricane Michael had on voting patterns in the Florida panhandle. And Hurricane Michael was a major Category 5 hurricane, devastated parts of the panhandle. And it came just a few weeks before the midterm elections in 2018, which is when Governor DeSantis was elected. And what they did is they analyzed the typical voter turnout in, in the eight counties that were most affected. And they, they you know, kind of ran that same kind of data on that election right after the storm. And what they found was a 7% drop in voter participation in the impacted counties, which, you know, it was, they, they estimated because some of those counties are not the most highly populated counties are very rural. So they estimated about 13,000 people did not vote who would typically vote which is really notable because the Senate race in 2018 between now Senator Rick Scott and, and Bill Nelson, it was decided by only 10,000 ballots. So so the the estimated impact of voters not voting right in the wake of a major disaster was larger than the spread of victory for one of the most high profile races. Wow, 7% drop. Right. And 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 so the the researcher I talked to Kevin Morris with the Brennan Center of Justice at NYU, um, you know, he was pointing out, you know, this is what happened in 2018. And now, you know, the the major impact of Hurricane Ian is a a different part of the state, a more populated part of the state. Um, And, you know, the epicenter of a lot of this destruction um, is lee county and this is not something they go into in 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 the paper because they were looking backwards but lee county is the most populous reliably republican county in the state um they've they've been very strong supporters of republican candidates up and down the ballot and you know the alarm that the researchers are, are raising right now is you know, if if the state doesn't figure out the logistics of this, if local elections officials don't figure this out or if there's a collaboration between them, that area could see a very large drop in voter participation. And, and just a reminder, that particular area, um, um, 
more than 55 deaths occurred um, right. in that specific area after Hurricane Ian. Now, after a state emergency, uh, state law allows an election to be suspended or delayed. How likely would that happen post Hurricane Ian? It, it is something that is allowed. Actually, it's written into the, the state constitution. It can be done. You know, whether it will actually happen, we have not seen any, um, you know, indication that the governor is thinking about that. Um, but it is something that could be on the table, potentially. Um, you know, and, and Governor DeSantis in the past, I mean, we think of right as COVID was was hitting in, in March of 2020. You know, there was a lot of people were pushing to push back or, or delay the midterm elections. I mean, sorry, the, the primary elections, because a lot of states were doing it. And DeSantis at the time said, we voted in the in the Civil War. <laughs> Florida, we're going to vote. We're going to do it. And, and you know, in some of the public comments he's made, it sounds like that's not something on the table, although technically it could be. But we'll you know, we'll see. Only time would tell at that. Right. That'd be a bit. That'd be a major thing. Yeah, that would be absolutely huge. Now, individual circumstances and polling resources uh, provided by officials have an impact on voter participation, which is what you're saying right now. And so do vulnerable places that are especially at risk of major hurricane damage. What does the paper say about folks who are living in barrier islands, for example? Right. Well, the, you know, the, the, the paper, they really looked at like what made some areas have higher turnout than other areas. And, and a big part of what they, you know, one of the success stories as, as they put it is um, what happened in Bay County um, in, in the panhandle. And basically they had, they had 44 precincts in, in all of Bay County. And because of the disaster, it was shrunk down and they actually were reduced to six polling locations in the entire county. Um, but the, the researchers found that those were strategically placed in areas where, where people were displaced and where, where um, you know, where, the, where the, Im- the highest impact was so that people could actually heavily access it. It would be easier. So it was... You know, they're they're basically calling at at this point for in a place like Lee County to consolidate polling locations into a few areas in these really high impacted areas and just, you know, open it up. And the governor might have to step in and do some kind of executive order to to allow something like that to happen. But that would be a best case scenario. And that consolidation makes sense because you you have to consider the way in which voters uh, have to travel uh, far distances to even vote. And if you can sort of centralize the process, it may make things a bit more smooth. <laughs> right. So so the, the Lee County Supervisor of Elections, Tommy Doyle, um, has been kind of publicly floating like what they're doing and what they're thinking. Um, you know, he was he, he told NPR yesterday that only 30 of the 99 election day polling sites are accessible and not severely damaged. So that's that's about one third of the sites that they ha- usually have is even on the table at all right now. Um, so he's, he's, he says they're, they're trying to work and figure out how they can maybe open centers to allow people to vote, almost like early voting sites where mm. no matter what precinct you usually vote at, you can vote at any of those sites wherever you might be located um, to do something like that. Right. And, and Danny, of course, there might be outliers in any research, right? Uh, out of the counties in the Florida panhandle that were studied, what were the outliers, if any? 
Right. Well, well, the one that researchers point to was was Bay County, actually, um, because they they allowed voters from any precinct to vote in these six. What do they call them? Like super election sites. So no matter if you usually, you know, you vote in one part of town, but maybe you're displaced, you're staying with your your auntie in another part of town, you could go and you could vote at any one of those sites. So they pointed out that, that that's that's a, a positive thing. Um, you know, one thing I'll mention that um, that's on the table here is that mail-in ballots have been mailed out. And in, you know, which think about that. Um, in, in Collier County, which was heavily hit, the mail-in ballots were mailed out just a few days before the storm. In Collier County is, is near uh, Lee County, right? Right, right. It's just to the south, so uh, Naples and whatnot. And um, so those those ballots were mailed out just days before. You know, it, p- homes might be destroyed. People might have lost their mail-in ballots. Um, they might be in the floodwater somewhere. I mean, it's just the reality of the situation. And in Lee County you know, the epicenter of this damage, they sent, they mailed out the mail-in ballots yesterday on Thursday, which is their, you know, by law, they have to by that date. But the supervisor of elections has been saying, and he released a statement saying, hey, we had to mail these out by law, but there's parts of the county where there is no mail service. You know, the mail service hasn't reached parts of the county. Um, and they're trying, you know, he's urging people to call his office to figure it out. The USPS is sending up um, areas where people can come and pick up their mail if they live somewhere where there's not mail service to just try to figure out the logistics of this because it, it's a it's a problem. And it's going to continue to be a problem. I, I wonder if people who are concerned about not receiving ballots can actually fight the county about this situation. Obviously, they have to mail it by law, but. Can people actually fight this? Can they sue? Can they? What, what's what's the sort of recourse that voters have? Uh, <laughs> so so, I, so I, I am not, I am not an elections lawyer, so I can only say so much. But I, I, I mean, it's clear that things are are getting messy, and you know the 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 state supervisor of elections association, they they've publicly said you know we're waiting to see if the governor is going to issue some kind of executive order, help people out in some kind of way. Um, but at the same time, the governor's hands are tied because of election laws they passed. So, you know, in 2021, the Florida legislature, you know, after all these widespread, you know, not really based on reality accusations of ballot fraud, they cracked down on different ways that people do voting by mail. And one of the ways they cracked down on it is they said, you know, any individual you can only you can bring your ballot to a Dropbox place and you can bring two two other people's ballots. But say there's a family of five that's displaced and they have mail-in ballots and they have one car and they want to do all this in one trip. Well, you, you can't do that. Under, can't do it. under state law now, you can't do that. You can't do it. And that's executive. I mean, an executive order can't override the state law on that. Right. Danny Rivera is the co-host of the South Florida Roundup and reporter for WLRN. Thank you so much for joining us, Danny. Thanks, Wilkin. Still to come, the city of Miami decided to terminate the contract for the Tower Theater, and many people in the community aren't happy about it. (music) 
I'm Wilkin Brutus. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup to our special fundraising edition. Uh, and thank you for your support. There's controversy surrounding the beloved Little Havana Art House Cinema in Miami after the city of Miami decided to terminate and not renew its lease with Miami-Dade College. The college ran the historic Tower Theater in Miami for the last 20 years. The executive director of Tower Theater had been in negotiations, but city officials decided to end the deal at the beginning of next year. Filmmakers and community members have been protesting the city's controversial decision. How do you feel about the decision? Do you have any special memories or stories involving the Tower Theater? Call us. Share your stories with us. 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or you can tweet us at WLRN. Joining us now is director of the Tower Theater, Nicola Calzada, and Miami filmmaker and programmer, Chris Molina. Chris and Nicola, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Thank you. Exciting to be here. Thanks for joining us. Now, Nicola, protests have already been organized, and Chris put together an online petition with nearly 7,000 signatures as of this morning. Did this notice from the city come as a surprise to you, Nicola? Was there any notice ahead of time? Well, uh, so my my focus is on uh, directing the theater and film festival. Uh, Those negotiations between the college and the city go on uh, at the highest levels of the college. Uh, what, what I can say uh, is that publicly, in, in a statement released earlier this week and, and privately for quite some time, the college has shown extraordinary flexibility in incorporating city ideas into our the already successful program that we've been running as a cinema for the last 20 years. For example, uh, Commissioner Carollo uh, in a press conference earlier this week mentioned, uh, you know, possibly turning Tower Theater into a, a visitor center for, for tourists visiting Little Havana. The college has said, hey, you know, Monday to Friday, we don't have our first shows until the evening. We're, we're very happy to turn it over from nine to five so the city can, you know, welcome visitors from out of town. And, and you know, there's a way to incorporate these ideas while still continuing the incredibly beloved program that we've been running here for 20 years. You know, the, the Tower Theater has always, from its inception over 100 years ago, been, been cinema. It's Miami's most iconic cinema by far. And under, NBC, and under NBC's administration over the last 20 years, it's become one of the most beloved art house cinemas in the entire nation. I mean, USA Today named us one of the top 10 places to see a movie in all of America. So there is a way to continue this incredibly successful and incredibly beloved program that we've had going for 20 years, while also incorporating some of the great ideas that, that Commissioner Carollo and the city have have you know, proposed for expanding the use of the building. Right. And, and Miami-Dade College has had a five-year lease on the property since 2016. Was Miami-Dade College planning on renewing its contract with the city? It, again, those negotiations go on at, at the highest levels of the college. I, I certainly know the college would love to keep continuing operating this theater. Uh, we, we've just gotten such an outpouring of support from the community since these stories have broken. And they really, you know, reaffirm just how special what we've been doing here for 20 years has been and how much the community loves this theater uh, and, and just associates this theater with cinema. You know, I, I was thinking the other day, this this would kind of be tantamount to, you know, the city of New York saying, hey, we're going to we're going to take Yankee Stadium and we're going to you know convert it into a farmer's market or something. You know, the, the farmer's markets are great, but the city has plenty of them and it has plenty of places where it could build more. But there's only one home for the Yankees. Right. And, and this is kind of the local equivalent of that. There's only one Tower Cinema, and it's been that way for 100 years. It's it's our most iconic cinema in the city. 
Uh, I think what we need to do is find a way to continue MDC's amazing stewardship of the cinema while also incorporating some of the cities. And and the college on its part has shown tremendous willingness to do exactly that. Right. And, and um, obviously you laid out the reasons why this specific cinema art house, this art house is historic in so many different ways. Uh, has the city given the challenge um, I'm sorry, has the city given the college any explanation for why they'd like to take over the theater's management? No, no. And, and I think, you know, the, the college's administration for the last uh, 20 years has just been absolutely extraordinary. Like, you know, if you, you, you can, you know, the story has been broken now for, for a couple of weeks. You can comb all the stories. No one has a negative thing to say about how well the college has administered this theater for 20 years. Uh, it's it's immensely popular theater. Uh, you know, the, our grosses are a matter of public record. You know, any distributor or theater can go onto Comscore and see. And what you'll see there is that we bring 50,000 people a year, every single year, year after year into this neighborhood to see the best of, of national and international cinema, to meet, you know, world-renowned directors and actors. Uh, the college's management of this is, has been extraordinary. So there really isn't a constituency for this change. The, the public outcry this last week has been enormous. It's very clear where the public stands. Local businesses know how important the Tower Theater is to Little Havana, where, where the neighborhood's anchor. Imagine, I mean, we bring 50,000 people into the neighborhood every year. Those people go out to eat after, they go get an ice cream. Uh, so, and the local film community, you know, and I think Chris can speak to that, uh, has come out hugely in support of, of MDC continuing to administer the Tower Theater because we, we don't just, uh, you know, program films. We, we view as part of our mission to support local filmmakers and local artists. And so we have things like the Miami Film Lab where, you know, for free, we host, uh, you know, a mentorship program for up and coming filmmakers. We, we do the Oolite uh, short film screenings. Again, you know, free of charge. We, we want to give local filmmakers a platform to show their films. Uh, if you walk to the second floor of the mezzanine today, you will see that for several months now, we have an exhibit up of Daniel Moran's art. He's a local artist, a local Cuban American artist. It is in our DNA to support local filmmakers and local artists. And that's why every aspect of this community has come out hugely in support of MDC's con continuing administration of the Tower Theater because it's been a huge success and there's really no reason to change it, especially if the college is showing such willingness to incorporate uh, additional ideas. Right. And, and uh, let's segue to Chris. Uh, you, you talked about the artist community. Uh, let's get his perspective as well. Uh, Chris, what was your initial reaction and response to hearing the news about the Tower Theater? It was really surprising because um, I think so many of us in the filmmaking community can consider Tower to be a second home, um, consider it to be one of our first choices when it comes to putting on screening because it's such a historic place. Um, to to hear about the city even wanting to get rid of it was was pretty alarming. Yeah, and, and that petition you created has 6,881 signatures, nearly 7,000. What led you to create that online petition, and did you expect to see this type of response? No, I didn't expect it at all. I expected maybe 200, maybe 300, um, but 6,000, almost 7,000 is, is way more than I could have ever expected. Um, when I first saw the article, I think that was my first instinct. Instinct was that okay, this is this is you know something that may happen. We need to come together as a community to make it not happen. Um, and so far, I think the communities come together uh, pretty pretty loudly and pretty strongly. 
uh, Nicola talked about the, the the history behind this uh, famous this uh, art house that has brought the community so much joy, specifically the film and art community. Um, why is the Tower Theater so important to the community in your perspective? What, what does it mean to to you? Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, I really think about uh, my grandparents coming to this theater um, or, or people like my grandparents coming to this theater when they first got here from Cuba um, and that being their first experience with American life. Um, and now how I am here, um, you know, however many years later showing my own films, uh, but it kind of, kind of proving their hard work to be true and, and really coming up. Um, yeah, it's kind of the American dream, but it's pretty cheesy, but it's, it's true. Yeah. And, and and obviously you have that Cuban uh, immigrant background. What is the community saying about the commissioner's ideas for the theater? Um, from what I've heard, the community kind of doesn't really like it because what are we going to do with a, a, a tourist visitor center? Um, I mean, we all live here. We don't need it. A lot of the things that he's proposing, people can just look up on YouTube. It's practically commercials. Um, so, so everyone's pretty upset by it. Also, everyone keeps pointing out that there's a visitor center, you know, a couple blocks away. So why turn the tower theater, which, which is so beloved into something that already exists both on Calle Ocho already and on the internet. Now, Chris, you got the attention that you want. And a lot of folks who are hearing about the story for the first time, uh, perhaps want to know what are your next steps in this after the petition and all of the protests? Um, I think the next steps are definitely to keep calling Joe Carroyo and other commission, other commissioners to let them know um, how the community feels about this um, and to show up to the next commissioner meeting next Thursday. I think it's at 830 a.m. Um, to to vocalize your support. I, I know it's not on the agenda, but I think if enough people show up and, and are angry enough, um, the commissioners will have no choice but to address it. Uh, Nicolat, we have two minutes here. Very briefly, uh, what do you think is next for the college and, uh, I'm sorry, for Tower Theater? Well, uh, you know, I, I think the, the key is, you know, continuing uh, to encourage the public to, to make their voices heard. You know, th- this is this is a, a democracy like any other. And I think it's very clear that the public loves uh, the theater as it's been administered for the last 20 years. So, you know, if they continue to tell uh you know their leaders in the city uh how they feel about this i think i think eventually the city's going to come around and they're going to say hey you know why broke something why fix something that's not broken this has been working extraordinarily well for 20 years clearly the community and the, and the local businesses and everyone's behind this and the college has shown willingness to to incorporate our ideas so so let's come together let, let's uh have a good compromise solution here you know it can be a visitor center you know uh monday to friday from nine to five or, or saturday sunday in the mornings uh, and then it can continue to be the, the cinema that everyone in, in the city and everyone in the entire country loves. I've had distributors, I mean, distributors from every major, you know, movie distribution company reach out to me in the last week since this news has broken saying, well, you know, what can we do to help? Like, the, people come from all over to see films at the Tower Theater. Uh, we have international renown. It would be a real shame to to lose that. And um, film festivals are coming up. Uh, Chris mentioned another theater. Have you heard that particular sentiment as well about folks saying, hey, we have another theater. Why are we so worried about this one? How do you respond to that? You're saying that the film festival? Well, the film festival does have multiple venues, uh, you know, and, and in the worst case event where, where the city plan goes through, you know, we, we were working on contingency plans 
to replace this particular venue. So in terms of the festival, uh, it's not an issue, but but the biggest issue is the enormous loss to the community that this beloved art house cinema uh, would be if, if it went away. Uh, as I said, for almost a hundred years, the Tower Theater has been a cinema. That, that, that's, it's, it's in its DNA. Uh, it's not time to change that, especially when it's working so well. Do you know when the highest grossing week in Tower Theater history was? It was last week. Uh, that that means that the support for this theater is as strong as it's ever been. Wow! Uh, people love this theater. Uh, it, it it needs to stay the way it is. Nicholas Calzada is the director of the Tower Theater in Miami, and Chris Molina is a filmmaker and programmer in Miami. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you so much for the time. Thanks for having us. That would do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Natu Tway. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Our interim managing editor is Katie Munoz. Jessica Bakeman is the senior editor of news. Christine DiMatte is the interim newscast editor. Matt Sanchez is the digital editor. The director of radio operations and show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mayers. Richard Ives answers phones. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Thanks for calling and listening. And remember, stay hydrated.